Well, everyone, it's that time again. A significant endpoint in a series that I keep up with has been met, and so here I am coming out of the woodwork to spew some opinions on it. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 8 JoJo Leon, that has been running monthly in Ultra Jump since 2011 and is now the longest part of the entire series. I guess to go into my background on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, I, like, Many of the English-speaking fandom got into it with the anime. When I caught up, it was the first season of Stardust Crusaders that was airing, and I kept up with that, the second season, and Diamond is Unbreakable as the anime came out. And then Diamond is Unbreakable had quite a long break after it before the Part 5 anime was announced. So I believe it was that space of dead air that made me dive into the Golden Wind manga. Then from there, I've kind of been very, very periodically gone through a part. It's interesting. When, like, binging through the JoJo's anime, showing it to friends, like, rewatching it, I have infinite stamina for it. But when it comes to reading a new part of the manga... They really knock me out. I need a good few months before I can start on the next one. And I guess... I, I don't know. I am very non-spicy on this series. You know, I like the parts everyone likes. I love part two. I love part seven. Part four is pretty cool. And yeah, parts one and five are probably on the weaker end for me. I think I was just... Even with all the hype going into it, I was just so flawed by part seven. When I finished it, it was like every strength of prior parts wrapped into one and told in a far more clear, kind of momentous way than the series had ever been to that point. It was Araki reaching his absolute peak. And so after that... I was very much of the mindset of, this series has done everything it needs to for me. Araki doesn't owe me anything with whatever comes next. I'm just gonna let, just let, just let it be what it is. So coming into this, weirdly enough, despite having very, very high feelings on the last part, I actually came in with expectations at the floor, particularly because I had heard the fairly lukewarm reception that this part had. Particularly, I had caught a glimpse of some of the more strongly negative takes. So this was a very interesting one in that like, when I started it, I was really pleasantly surprised. I don't know if it's just because I'd only heard these kind of vague points, but I was sort of under the impression that this part didn't fit together, didn't make any sense, and kind of barely resembled what JoJo's usually is. Not really the case at all. It has it has a very cohesive plot that clearly fleshes itself out into a logical endpoint, and it does have typical stand encounters like you'd expect of a JoJo's part. Which I'm sure to some fans that's like the most obvious statement in the world. Like, oh yeah, this JoJo's part has JoJo stuff in it. Well done. But the way some people talk about this part, I was under the impression it didn't. So, eh. okay. So from here, I'm going to go into spoiler-free thoughts. I'm not going to establish too much of the plot. This part has such a dense, intricate web of things going on that I don't think I could summarize it and I'd just be wasting time. I'd rather just get to my thoughts. So if that makes it hard to understand out of context, apologies for that, but I will do what I can. Um, so this part for me, I really admire its ambition. I'm not sure it totally works. But I like that Araki took a big swing at something very different. As opposed to being driven solely by main character needs to get this one goal, it kind of 
starts with that, but unfurls into lots of little breadcrumb trails being followed, and this wider web of mystery and conspiracy being unraveled. The first half of the part, for me, is really strong. It's up there with the highlights of parts, like, three, four, and six, and for me. Uh, not quite up there with part seven and two, but still really, really working for me. And then it peaks super hard midway through, and then the second half is far more scattershot and unwieldy, and that's where I think a lot of the problems really become more severe. I know this part, it's a bit contentious in how it doesn't really focus on a strong overarching villain. This did not have to be a problem for me, because I know the series is known for its villains, and that's a big selling point for a lot of people, but I just kind of take each part as the type of story it's wanting to tell. So if it felt like it desperately needed a main overarching villain, I guess that would be a problem, but if it doesn't, it doesn't. And to me, it's not so much that as it is the back half of this plot really, really needs a stronger sense of momentum, because that breadcrumb trail of slowly working out all the various little details about this town and all of the weird little ins and outs of the Higashikata family works well in the first half when the main character Gappy is trying to piece things together. In the second half, where it's meant to be more goal-driven, it becomes a little more laboured and frustrating. This part very much uses the fallout of Steel Ball Run as a background for events that unfold, despite telling a wholly different story, and I do like that. It plays into kind of the intertextuality between parts in a nice way, which I think this does a lot. I think post-reset JoJo's is really interesting, because it airs on the side of almost being too pandery, of like, oh, look, here's this character that you recognised from the last timeline. Here's this stand you recognised from the last timeline. But it uses it to just the right degree that it's icing rather than makeup. Araki is very clearly concerned with writing a type of story he hasn't done before, first and foremost. And all of the little nods to previous parts are more just a little extra than anything else. It's, a li it's, it's the right degree of fan service. A lot of the pre-reset parts, the threats of the stand encounters were very visceral and clear and often just like, it's a very clear scary monster that you have to work out how to unravel. The standing counters in this part give this sense of subtle paranoia that is really strong, and that does a good job of hitting home how disoriented Gappy must be in general, and plays into that more. The idea of the town's bizarreness sort of being built into the very fabric of its makeup with the wall eyes for like years and years, dating back to this old curse, the, the, the Joestar curse, and it's very interesting, and it, it allows that paranoia to feel more subtle, even when it does ramp up from time to time. And obviously, you do get more blatant uses of stands. The stands are very ubiquitous. Uh, their mystery stems more from, like, the social pressure of how they're used. So stand users know about them, but rarely show them off, because it's considered kind of a taboo. It's like, you know, showing off your junk in public, you don't do it. In contrast to the pre-race set parts, where there's always a given explanation, like the bows and arrows that set people off, or Poochie's stand in part six. There is body horror galore in this part, 
that it might be the strongest the series has lent into it. So if you find that very off-putting, you might not want to go into this. I personally really liked this. I think in some instances it felt like Araki was drawing on Junji Ito here, and I find it quite fun, but I also totally get that why people can't get into it. I'm squeamish with body horror when it's like live-action special effects, but when it's drawn in manga form, doesn't seem to bother me that much. One thing that really impressed me about this part is the very strong theming in the stand encounters. Memory and proximity play into a lot of them, like the stand is very focused on direction and tracking, or this stand is focused on erasing memories of either yourself or of other people, and a lot of them play into the general confusion and the disorientation of the protagonists, which is cool. But while the stand encounters are great, the connective tissue often isn't. Like, the Shakedown Road encounter I love, but how we get to it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. There's this moment of revelation where Gappy realises, oh, I need to get into the family's good books, uh, the family patriarch. Uh, the grandpa Norisuke the fourth in particular, but like following this, he says, "I want to go to school," and it's not really articulated clearly why I I want to go to school is his go-to thing for getting close. I guess is it's to like fit in with the rest of the family. I, I don't know. It ends up just kind of taking him to this encounter in a shakedown road with Joshu, who is the worst. I'm pretty sure nobody fucking likes this guy. He is like the most deliberately arsy character. It's like the series kind of constantly kind of dunks on him, but also he he still sticks around until the very end and it's like why <laughs> why why is he still alive <laughs> a lot of the stand encounters play into this very warped dream logic uh like there's this one where joshu himself constantly accrues money in fact that one made me think he's kind of like the higechi of this part he is just the worst and you hate him and he gets involved in an encounter that involves accruing loads and loads of money so i have to wonder if it's a deliberate parallel so i guess to say i binged this all in one go i didn't read keep up with it month to month at all after finishing part seven a couple of years ago i very much said okay this part is like what 18 volumes deep i'm going to leave it until it ends and I am so glad I did that, because holy crap, this part must be the most difficult thing to follow month to month. It's so protracted, and it's got a very stop-starty nature, it gets very unwieldy towards the end, and it's compounded by the fact that like there are these constant recaps that re-explain the rock flute and what Gappy is, and as a result, it's really hard to say what the best reading experience of this part would have been, because it's definitely not month to month, because the plot progression is so all over the place. But at the same time, I wouldn't recommend binging it in too much bulk, apart from towards the end. I think this is best read at your own pace. Like, when I wasn't really into it, I'd, I'd put it down, and then I'd pick it back up again, and that was a very comfortable way to experience it, I think. There is something very charming to me about how we went from this grand epic adventure crossing a continent in Steel Ball Run to this claustrophobic mystery where the Jojo of the park has to uncover the mysteries and the eccentricities of, like, this small town and this surrogate family that has taken him in. The characters are a little weak, though. There are very few that I will say, yeah, I like them. I was always interested in them, and I wanted to find out more about them and see them explored, but they were more functional pieces of a larger tapestry. I can't say I like liked many of them. I liked Gappy for the first half, but the second half really dropped the ball with him. I've heard a lot of complaints that he's kind of boring and a blank slate. I will say, the first half, he had a lot more personality. He had all sorts of these weird quirks, and it was one of those rare cases of a memory loss protagonist that was written in a really interesting way. So he had these weird quirks, 
and just no frame of normalcy. Because he, basically his last memory is being buried under the wall eyes, he loves to be trapped under things, and like, he feels more comfort when he is squashed by something, so he sleeps underneath a mattress rather than on top of it. And stands, he assumes that they are normal to him, because he knows his stand, and he just assumes everyone else has one. And he also doesn't have that shared shame of showing his stand that everybody else does. With some JoJo's, it's very much the confidence despite overwhelming odds, like with Jotaro, of them like toughing it out. It's like, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna tough it out and find the weakness and find the way to beat the standing counter. With Gappy, it's more the selective confidence, because he is so askew with his priorities that he has to know something that we don't to act so confident in a dire situation. So when Gappy shows resolve to beat a stand encounter, you know that he knows something we don't. And then sadly, after the midpoint, he just becomes a complete cipher. Any of the early quirks he had are just sanded away, and he just becomes this very boring character that is just focused solely on his goal and not much else. And this is especially sad, given that said midpoint of the story does give him a bit of a springboard to work off. I think if the oddities in the stand encounters of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure aren't much of a draw in and of themselves to you, you might struggle with this part. I think inherently a lot of the parts of JoJo's are, okay, the characters have this goal, but here's a lot of standing counter filler to fill the time, and here are these obstacles that they have thrown your way. And a lot of the time, sometimes midway through a part, Araki will just write in more obstacles to pad things out more. And I know for some people that's frustrating, and I think if you're not connecting with a part, the characters or the concept of a part, those will be exacerbated for you. And I think the fact that often the thrust of the story isn't even clear at points exacerbates this. It's weird. It all ties together at the end, and by the end I'm like, yeah, that came to its natural stopping point in a way that was pretty satisfying, but it's a hefty road to get there. And I guess from there we'll go into actual spoilers, because I've been dancing around it, but the midpoint of the series I'm talking about is, of course, the encounter with Damo Tamaki. There is such a palpable sense of stakes in this arc. It's like Gappy is his whole world that he understands up until this point feels like it's on the line, because he's threatening the entire family, and it really does pay off that whole first half where Gappy is working out the various eccentricities of each of them that like it, the stakes just feel really 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 high and you pair this with all these revelations that you get about his character in the coinciding flashback and it's here that you have the initial mystery being revealed and the flashback detailing it is great i got more invested in kira and josephumi than maybe any other character uh, it's like, I love how Joseph Umi has these deep-seated abandonment issues due to, like, the childhood experience he had of nearly drowning and his mother faltering in trying to save him. He felt like she abandoned her. And through this, he almost gives up the info on the rock fruit to Damo when he questions them both. But then Kira saves him, acting against that. And it's that moment that followed of, of Joseph Umi giving Kira the rock fruit is so sold. And it's totally believable how much kinship they have between them, especially after this moment. And I was surprised that, like, despite how little time they were established in, how invested I got in them. And I think to have that initial mystery pay off in such a satisfying way here, it almost didn't matter how good or bad the second half of the part was to me, because I, like, I got that big payoff in such a cool way. And I will say, I think, on that alone, this part is worth it. And I don't want to entirely write off everything from there, but it is also a lot weaker. I was sort of into it to a point, but then it was the encounter with Wu Tomoki 
from there that the structural issues just kind of compounded themselves of the middle of the part pivot to okay we know who gappy is we know what he is now we need to get to this rock fruit branch i'm gonna keep calling it the rock fruit because the rokakaka is a hard thing to say and from what i've googled that is just a name that like araki has made up so i think that's not offensive for me to say Uh, you know if it is an actual indonesian word i am sorry it is a difficult word for me to say over and over again so i'm going to refer to it as the rock fruit but i am 90 percent sure it's not to a point it is very focused on okay we need to find this in order to heal holly and the child of the family i forget sarugi i believe is his name yeah and and it really really ramps up with the poor tom encounter which is one of those encounters that like puts the enemy on the back foot a bit which i like a lot i like it when the enemy is kind of a cornered beast and you get more insight into them because it becomes more of a push and pull and it i don't know there's something very interesting about that it's one of those instances of the multiple perspectives actually working to its advantage but then after so much value was put on this branch we cut away to this hospital encounter where we learnt these other rock fruits are being grown there in an instant. And in hindsight, this isn't a problem because it is established that the branch they were trying to get in Port Tom is the new rock fruit uh, formed from Josephumi's grafting and the various circumstances that kind of made it grow. But on, on the flip side, there was a good stretch of chapters where I just felt like okay, the, the entire tension of the last few standing counters just went out the window. It's kind of that lack of clarity on what the threat they're working against or the goal they're working towards from here that really undercuts the part for me. Like, there's lots of things ongoing at once and there's no clear focus. Like, the second instant this comes across is when in the final encounter with the Endless Calamity, where you have Jobin, who is this really interesting character he's probably one of my favorite characters of the part you got him as this kind of underdog protagonist this kira like figure except it's like what if kira was within the family that the protagonist has become ingratiated with and that that adds its own elements of fear over the stuff that kira did with hayato and it that, that's really cool and then on the flip side you have toru as the bad guy who is basically like has a lot of the same problems with me that diavolo has and it's like you have them at the same time in the arc and i'm like i just wish this climax was focused on jobin rather than toru honestly the wider conspiracy of the hospital based rock humans were much less interesting to me than the plot that jobin was having him butting heads with the sympathetic family members i I guess if you could call them that jobin also ties into the idea of the part very well as well because in contrast to gappy who desperately seeks his memories and wants to get them back jobin as a kid had to selectively remember things and him and his mother both obscure things from the family jobin in a way that wields a lot of power he's kind of a walter white like figure in that he gaslights his family constantly under the pretense of protecting them. And I was always really interesting when things got tense with him, in a way that it just didn't with Toru at all. With that said, I think the Endless Calamity, as a broader conclusion, does on the whole work. It's like that wider curse and conspiracy that they're fighting against manifested as a path. And I also like how the big last stand encounter is very literally... Oh ho, so you're approaching me, Jojo. <laughs> and then at the heat of everything, he had that turnaround of Gappy being, no, 
you are the one approaching me. And it, ah, that was a really cool moment. I think that's the thing. I keep using tapestry because I feel like that is the best way to describe the wider structure of this arc. It's like this intricate series of threads that work together. In the moments when that comes into focus, this part was very satisfying. But the moments where they're out of focus, it is just a little more abrasive. But yeah, I think it's best read as a narrative about the wider threats to the Hagashikatas rather than as one coherent thing they're working against. From here, I'm kind of going to go into random observations about the part. So I like that when we first meet Holly, she's reading a porno mag. <laughs> <laughs> like what you get your stable of jojo's bizarre adventure moments that are impossible to explain out of context like and so the street thugs use the fallen leaves with stands hidden underneath them to launch themselves curled up into human cannonballs at their foe <laughs> the stuff with johnny absolutely hurt my soul johnny is one of my favorite joe stars he, it's like him and josuke i think part four josuke specifically learning what happened to him was so gut-wrenching it's like wow araki you're really gonna do in my boy like that that was interesting actually because i got spoiled on the fact that gappy was called josuke and i thought this was a big reveal about his identity it's really not it's like he is ostensibly Josuke, because that is the identity that he assumes, and that's what he's called for the duration of the part, and ultimately the one that he comes to accept. But yeah, obviously if you've been spoiled on that, that's not going to affect how much you know about the mystery at all, really. So that's nice. I like the frequency of the fights involving hand-to-hand -hand combat in this part. This mainly was the case around the middle, but it is cool when you get that. Uh, it's like the two brothers with the football are a particularly good example of this. Another one that comes to mind is the one from part six where Jolene is like fighting that security guard. Because I think that's one thing that Jojo's kind of lost. Like it gained stands and it just completely abandoned the earlier more hand-to-hand -hand based stuff. And whereas this one, it does kind of continue to weave that in. And it also continues to weave spin in. Although yeah, spin, it's very selective when spin happens, which I think is to its advantage, as opposed to being like a blanket system that is just forgotten. Spin is something utilised by specific characters, and here it comes up in relation to Gappy because of obviously his ties to the Joestar family line. Another reason I think Jobin could have easily been rendered a full-blown antagonist is that like he could have been a really fun evil mirror to Steel Ball Run's Johnny, whereas Johnny was this underdog that rises to the challenge through working alongside an overdog and stepping out of his shadow. I think Jobin could have been this in relation to Tanaki, or maybe even Toru, but instead Toru is the one who comes out on top and ends up being the final boss so oh well and he also has like the curse of johnny joestar leaning over so large over his upbringing but i guess the wider curse does become the main threat and breaking that curse is the resolution an interesting reading could be the idea of the rock fruit as an ethical quandary or as a straw man for stuff like free healthcare. Like, it's very interesting, the idea that perhaps is Kato that much less villainous than Toru in how she does just grind the remainder of this life-saving, the remainder of this plant that could be game-changing for medicine and uses the last of it 
towards her own grandson's ends. But then again, it is also being used in the context of this high-pressure standing counter where Toru isn't letting it be used for anything else. Uh, so I, I guess it's justified. You could also have that debate of, is it better not used at all or used under exploitative capitalism the way Tomoki wants to do it? Of Let's rack up the price of this bad boy, use it for all its value, sell it to all the billionaires. <laughs> so it, would that be better? You, we just have immortal billionaires and loads and loads of people having the same problems with the wealth gap as they did before? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I haven't fully investigated that train of thought, but it is a reading I'd be interested to hear. One issue with this part a lot is that there's lots of instances of waiting for characters to figure out stuff we already know. I think that's a big problem with when Jobin gets that branch, but Gappy and Rai are going after the head doctor instead, which ends up tying into things well, as the head doctor is going after the branch anyway. But again, that's not really established up front too much. Like, the conspiracy of the head doctor is vaguely brought up earlier, but it's not positioned in a way where I feel like, oh yeah, that's what we should be working towards and it doesn't draw enough attention to the conflict between Jobin and this and Gappy to make that clear. Rather than a big direct payoff, the final encounter is solved by a domino effect of all the various setups of the part, lining up to become Toru's undoing, which I think in its own way is quite satisfying. Uh, it's nice that Araki tried something different here. I could definitely see the Endless Calamity being fucking exhausting to read month to month because geez. Toru also ties into the idea of memory with him seeing the memory of the Hornet from his infancy and also him having a presence in Yasuho's memory that is rendered hazy. The main issue I have with Toru is that it's really hard to get a read on the guy. He has kind of this whole spiel about causality, which I guess is born from kind of his detachment from humanity as a rock human, but it's not really well established enough and like it never really delves into why he wants to make the fruit profit-driven and what makes him tick about being so profit-driven. But I guess it is what it is. So yeah, there are my very, very muddled thoughts on Jojo's Part 8, Jojo Leon. For all my misgivings with it, and I can definitely see why some people don't like the part, I am glad I read it, and I'm glad Araki tried something very different with it. It probably goes on the lower end of my rank part ranking overall. I'm, I'm kind of unclear. Like, a lot of it's like choosing between children, where I have lots of things I like about parts, and I find it hard to rank them. I'd say I like it better than the manga for part five, and better than part one in general, but not as much as the anime for part five, because I wasn't keen on the manga for part five, but I thought it was greatly improved in the anime. So that's where I am with that. So yeah, I'd kind of put it on the lower end. Still very glad I read it. I'm interested to see what Araki does next with Jojo Lands. Uh, I doubt I'll have the willpower to wait for it all to end like I did with this. Uh, so I will probably keep up with that fairly regularly. So yeah, hope you enjoyed hearing my thoughts. Uh, let me know what you thought on Jojo Leon in the comments. And uh, yeah, I doubt I'm going to be making videos regularly because I do not have the time right now. Uh, I am in a full-time job. And most of my free time, I just like to do, just read manga of my own accord and do tabletop RPGs. And that is just what I'm happy doing right now. So yeah, I, I might occasionally put out videos when I have the inspiration, but I guess how is that any different to before, really? So yeah, check out Duckface Diaries, my World Trigger read through podcast, where Wednesday Delta and I go through the World Trigger manga volume by volume. And follow me on Twitter at Hoven with an H. And with that, I'll see you all next time.